And good afternoon, Gary. It's afternoon there now, and it's still evening. Well, actually, no, it's after midnight where I am now. So that would be good morning, Gary. Good morning, absolutely. Good morning and good afternoon. We can't ever quite... No, there's 13 hours difference. We'll never be in the same AM-PM sequence. <laughs> nope. The only way we're going to do it is if we record together, and we haven't done that very often over these 60-plus podcasts, unfortunately. Although we'll be able to talk about that later, because mm. we're in, we will be together. Absolutely. So have you been well? I've been doing reasonably well. I'm trying to do as much as I can to uh, finish the work I have to do before I head off to Reno. I'm trying to read books for the column. Yep, uh, And, and um, trying to read books by people that we'll be meeting and hoping to podcast with as well. Fantastic. That, yes. I, uh, obviously, I, I'm doing much the same, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will tell you that uh, this is, always makes me a little self-conscious since this uh, – my written review won't be until the October issue of Locus at this point, but I'm very impressed by Christopher Priest's new novel. This is The Islands? The Islanders. The Islanders. And The Islanders is one of those novels that if you if you know about Chris Priest's career, you know this has been something that's that's been part of his writing since virtually the beginning. I yeah. mean, the, 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 he had a collection called The Dream Archipelago, which uh, I think was the stories go back to the late seventies. That, that sounds about right to me. Yeah. And um, and and then there, there's an allusion to the Supreme Archipelago in the so in the affirmation his novel. So the first thing I, I thought whenever I feel like I'm reading something that I'm vaguely familiar with, do I really have to go back and reread all this stuff in of order course. to? Man. And the the two pieces of good news are first of all, no, you don't. You don't need to have ever heard of uh, the Dream Archipelago before. Yeah, um, and it's, it's a very very compelling novel. I think it's going to be one of the best novels of the year. But it's also um, very, I would say, experimental in form, and that's one of the yeah. things that, that interests me about it. It's it's okay. a novel in the form of uh, a gazetteer, an alphabetical list okay. of articles, some of which are actually short stories uh, of all these thousands of islands that exist on this imaginary planet. Uh, mm-hmm. This archipelago exists between the warring northern continent and the barren southern continent. Mm-hmm. Um, all that's been established for decades with Priest, yeah. and vaguely remembered it. But uh, but it's, it, it takes a it takes a bit of nerve, even today, to write a novel which is not in any kind of linear narrative form at all. Well, it, well, it does. But I mean, to what extent? I mean, obviously, I've not read the book, but. Uh... Is, is it a, a novel without a narrative linear form, or is it similar to some kind of story collection or story suite, that kind of thing? Because, I mean, that's a known, much more better-known form. It's a better-known form, and it, 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 in part, it is a story suite. There are complete stories, even complete novellas within it. I think one or two of these pieces have actually been published in Interzone um, prior to this. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, there are stories, but at the same time, there is a continuous narrative which builds incrementally as you read one story and you find out that a character who has a smear on her hand in one story we find out where the smear comes from in another story mm-hmm. uh, there's a murder which runs throughout the whole thing so there, there's a very continuous plot in the whole thing with a number of major characters yeah but, but you learn you learn it by accretion not by not by linear narration okay. uh, it was a novel by uh, oh, who's the Serbian writer uh, Zoran Zivkovic? Uh, para, what was his name? Zoran Zivkovic? Is it him? No, not, not, not Zivkovic. Uh, 
Oh, Millerad Kasich, I think. Okay. Well, the, I'm thinking about the Dictionary of the Khazars. Oh, yeah, uh, the, the book you mean, yeah. About 20 years ago, it was, a, it was a novel in the form of three dictionaries. Yes. Uh, which dealt with the conversion of the Khazars, which were a real Serbian group in the 8th or 9th century, their conversion to Judaism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are three separate dictionaries, one one Christian, one Jewish, one Serbian, uh, that describe this. And you have to sort of put the whole narrative together yourself. Uh, there was a French new novel by Georges Perec, I think, called Life uh, User's Manual or something like that, mm-hmm. which was essentially a, a, a dictionary. So this sort of thing has been done before. What, what I think Priest has done that I haven't seen in these earlier experimental novels is create suspense. Okay. And there really is, I mean, I know I'm, enthused, I'm, I'm saying all kinds of things about it that I should say for the review, but you really want to read the next episode or the next entry because you realize the story you've got isn't complete and you're, you're constructing the story as you go along. And he, to my mind, he just does that brilliantly. Okay. Let me ask you one thing. I mean, there's two different paths that I'm torn down here. Just as a, as a starting point. Listening to you talk about it, is this kind of thing more of a European kind of a format rather than what you might expect to find, say, in the United States or somewhere else? Well, the the other novels I could think of uh, that have been like this have been European novels, like I say, the Serbian novel, the French novel, and so forth. And it's something that in some ways uh, echoes back to to experimental novels of the 60s and 70s. Yeah. There was was a famous novel by Julio Cortazar called uh, Opscotch, in which... You can read it one of three ways. You can read it from beginning to end. You can read it according to a sequence of chapters he gives you at the beginning, which changes the novel. Or you can just choose any chapter you want to. Mm. Um, and, and the thing is, the problem with most of those novels, um, and, and this carries over to some of the uh, British New Wave novels that were heavily influenced by them, mm. is that they're really dull. <laughs> <laughs> Once you've got the trick, you think, this is really clever, and I'm, I'm glad I've got the trick, but now I have 200 pages to go, and I've, I've got the... Uh, so frequently, there's not much of a plot in them at all. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there are actually multiple narrative threads in, in Priest. I mean, Priest has, has been playing narrative games for a long time with yes. unreliable narratives. I mean, novels like The Prestige or, yes. or, or The Glamour or The Extremes are much more complicated than, than they seem on the surface. Um, this novel has unreliable narrators within unreliable narrators. Uh, and you have to have some patience for that sort of thing. Sure. But what I always, and I was excited when I was when I was younger, I was really excited to read experimental fiction. I loved the first new wave stuff. Mm-hmm. I loved reading uh, Ballard's, you know, the assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy considered as an uphill bicycle race. Um, because I thought it was just new. And But after a few years of reading that, you think, yeah, okay, this is really cool, but... <laughs> Yes. Can you tell me a story in here somewhere? <laughs> and Priest managed to find a way to do that. I think Priest has managed to, to be honest, I think Ballard found a way to do that by the yeah. end of his career. Yeah. Given that Priest wrote two of my favorite novels of the last 15 years in The Prestige and The Separation, how does it stack up against them? I don't think it's... It, 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 I don't think it's entirely comparable with either, but it's closer to the separation in the sense that you're dealing with multiple points of view and multiple timelines and possible overlaps between different timelines. In other words, he's getting further and further from a linear, linear narrative. And I think this is a logical progression. If you go from 
the prestige and the glamour to the separation, which I think is a more daring novel than either of those were. Mm -hmm. And this is a little bit more daring than uh, than the separation was. Okay. It doesn't have it doesn't have the emotional pull that a, that a World War II novel does simply because of the historical connection with it. Yeah. And this is entirely an invented world to some extent, but it's it's surprisingly powerful. Okay. That's a heck of a recommendation, Gary. I should I should look at it. I mean I was eager to read it anyway and uh, you know so I'm pleased that you that you think so highly of it. Well, I'm, I'm what I'm really glad is to see some of the techniques of of, of modernist fiction uh, finally working their way in a in a coherent and uh, incompetent way into science fiction and fantasy because you know we've talked before about how uh, as imaginatively untrammeled what's the word I'm looking for. Uh, with, with the complete imaginative freedom available to SF and fantasy, mm. narrative has historically been very conservative. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's drawn its narrative forms from adventure novels. Yes. Uh, which can be done very, very well. And when and, and, and it's very clear that Moorcock wanted to do this in the 60s. He wanted to introduce alternate narrative forms. The problem is that some of those alternate narrative forms kind of got left behind in the 60s. Well, um, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and you, know, you can only do that for a while. Uh, but but modernism as a movement, and I've talked to any number of people. This is something that's fascinated a number of writers. Mm -hmm. I've had conversations with Gregory Benford about this. Yeah. Um, Michael Swanwick used to do a wonderful uh, lecture, which he eventually published in Asimov's on postmodernism. And all of all of us who've been thinking about this is wondering why is it that the modernist movement, the high modernist movement, which led to to, to Joyce and Yeats and eventually to Beckett and and so forth, paralleled the development of pulp science fiction. I mean, if you really think about it, you know, Ulysses was published within a few years of the first issue of Amazing Stories. Wow. And these two arcs were completely separated, and they sort of began to come together in the 60s. Sure. And then science fiction kind of gave up on it, but not entirely, because there, there were always ballards out there. There were always people like Brian Aldiss. Oh, yeah. Um, now that I think about it, most of them in, in England. Well, yeah, but, but the, the, the one exception that, that occurs to me and it would have occurred to me under different circumstances you, you get touches of it i think in stan robinson's mars trilogy little well, touches stan, of it uh, the, the, there are writers there are specific writers stan robinson is one of them uh, believe it or not benford is one joe haldeman is one who have drawn on specific traditions of modernism I and mean, you can mm -hmm. trace all kinds of uh, uh, traces of, 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 uh, of ernest hemingway and joe haldeman's work uh, there's a lot of Faulkner in, in Gregory Binsford's work, and there's a little bit of Fitzgerald there, too. Um, Stan Robinson's new novel seems to owe a lot to um, John Dos Passos. There, there are elements of it, certainly, and there's, there's you know, an acknowledgement in there. This is you know, sort of a book we're not going to talk about very much at all, I think, because it sort of sits behind a, a, a discrete thing. But yes, I've been reading 2312, Stan Robinson's new book that's coming out next February. And it does. It, it brings in all kinds of metatextual inter interjections you know, in, in between normal narrative chapters and all this kind of thing. It's very interestingly done. It adds a lot of uh, texture and depth to the book. Well, uh, I, that's a terrific technique for science fiction. It's a technique that Dos Passos developed for his trilogy, I think, back in the early, seems to me, the very early 1930s, the USA trilogy. Um, one of, the title of one of those novels was 1919, which, which is interesting. He used a year for a title. But then uh, Brunner's stand on Zanzibar very deliberately imitated Dos Passos. Mm. Yes. And I think the idea of using many biographies and little patches of, 
uh, stream of consciousness and newspaper headlines and newsreels and that sort of thing, that strikes me as being an absolutely brilliant way of portraying some kind of science fiction future world. Um, and as far as I know, Brunner was the first to do it, and it hasn't been done much since then. No, no. I mean, and it's interesting because we now think of Brunner as, you know, the man who did, did that with Stand on Zanzibar uh, and maybe with, you know, the Shockwave writer, when actually uh -huh. he was a very traditional kind of pulp writer. I mean, he wrote dozens upon dozens upon dozens of books, and it's this the small group of books which were perhaps a bit more experimental than you know his, the you know the main body of his work uh, stuff like Santa Zanzibar, Sheep Look Up, uh, The Jagged Orbit, uh, and I guess in fantasy the Traveler in Black. Um, yeah. That's what he's remembered for now. And interestingly, because it's something we're always talking about, he's now it seems to me, and you, I don't know if it's your, your perception too, he's someone who is coming back to the fore. You know, I hear his oh. name much more often. That I in the last five years than I did in the preceding ten. I think you're right. I I, I would like to think that um, that maybe Golanx's you know, classic reprint series or its forthcoming uh, ebook series will have something to do with that. Mm -hmm. but I also think there's a recognition that well, yeah, those books actually are worth revisiting, um, and maybe his whole career is worth revisiting. I, I I'm just barely old enough. I'm going to admit to that much. To remember something of Brunner before Stand on Zanzibar came out, now his, his novels were showing up in ace doubles. Mm. He was like he was like easy. Of course, Brian Aldiss was also showing up in ace doubles. But he was he was considered one of those British writers who were imitating the American market. The, and, and yes. Just, uh, and uh, Eric Frank Russell was in that category as well. Um, and then suddenly Stand on Zanzibar, the shockwave writer, the sheep look up, and we realize this is. Somebody else. You're right. He's now remembered as, as as one of the icons of the new wave, even though from what this manuscript I'm reading about him right now, uh, which I again I can't say much more about, uh, reveals a lot of evidence that the new wave didn't really want to have much to do with him when he was publishing those. Okay. Uh, so, so history changes according to the perspective you're looking at it from. But from the perspective of the '60s, Brunner uh, was not part of Moorcock's inner circle, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Well, but but did you have to be part of Moorcock's in a circle to be a new wave? Well, not well. That's a good question. Also, uh, the other question is the new wave, um, and I'm still unclear as to where that came from. I know that term was used um, in a review in Astounding. I think a P. Schuyler Miller review about '64 or '65, maybe. Mm -hmm. And of course, the term had been used. The Nouvelle Vague had been used by French filmmakers before that. Yeah. Uh, but most of what we think of as a new wave today is, is a kind of back formation. We're looking back on stuff in the 60s and say, oh, yeah, that was new wave. And um, the few times I've talked to people who are involved, there seems to be no real agreement at all on what was new wave or whether anybody other than Moorcock thought they were writing new wave. Well, I mean, see, that to me is funny because my knowledge of the new wave isn't deep. I wouldn't pretend it is. But the story sounds similar to Bruce Sterling founding Cyberpunk. You know, never really wrote much of it himself, but he was the, that driving force kind of thing. It sounded like Moorcock was, and I've always believed it to be the case, um, the driving force behind manufacturing the new wave. And obviously was fundamentally involved in it all. I mean, uh, I was just reading a piece this morning about, what, Jim Ballard and Keith Roberts having some famous dust-up at, Mike Moorcock's flat in Ladbroke Grove kind of thing. So, really? Yeah, oh yeah, apparently. 
Um, I, since we're both not remembering perfectly, I, I think the uh, the book I would recommend to anybody who wants to try to get into that period would be uh, Colin Greenman's book, The uh, Entropy Exhibition, which was a history of the New Wave based very heavily on correspondence and interviews and so forth in that period. Um, and I think he, but I, I, I think what it was at the time, or what it was, how it was perceived at the time by its participants or non-participants, is almost irrelevant. I mean, sure. you know, from looking back from today's perspective, uh, there's a sense of, well, Harlan Ellison's dangerous vision Mm -hmm. Anthologies must have been part of the American New Wave, but uh, at, at the time the Brits didn't think much of them at all, actually. Well, um, I, I was going to. It's interesting you should mention that because I was going to ask. It was the thought sort of trickling through my mind was, were the two Dangerous Visions volumes particularly New Wave? I don't think they were. There was an interesting introduction to I think the second volume to again Dangerous Visions, where Harlan specifically rejected the term New Wave to refer to this. But then went on to say, well, we could call them something else, like Nouvelle Vague, which, of course, <laughs> means new wave. <laughs> but I think, I, I think there was this. I think this, what, this is what happened in the 60s, apart from the new wave as a movement. And I think this is where uh, the Dangerous Visions anthologies do make a difference. He did tell writers to write stories that they felt they had been unable to write before because of market pressures, because of the magazine market, because of the editors yeah. out there. And I think some writers, a significant number of writers, wrote those stories. So, for example, you've got, I mean, there, there, and there are some classic stories that came out of those. Sure, of course, yeah. And um, the one example that comes to mind, because he was a friend of mine, was Philip Jose Farmer's Writers of the Purple Wage, yeah. which was a, a, a future dystopian, erotic version of Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, which he would never have been able to sell to any commercial market at all. Yes. And uh, there were other stories as well that, uh, that, that, that there's probably... Vonnegut's great space bubbles, I think, in the again dangerous vision. Yeah. So, so there was a sense in both the new wave as a movement in England and in the dangerous visions anthologies of taking down the constraints of telling writers you no longer have to write stories that you can only sell to um, two or three markets. Yes. And interestingly enough, I think that continues as a tradition. I think that's that's what happened later on in uh, in Terry Carr's series of anthologies and Silverberg's series of anthologies. In the 70s, the markets, because of original anthologies, the market seemed much more open to that sort of thing. Yeah, I think so. Hmm. Which is why I think, again, that having, you know, having open markets today with either original anthologies like your own Eclipse or online venues is a very healthy thing because I sense today that there are many fewer writers that feel constrained by what they can sell to editors than there were in the 60s. I'd like to think so. I mean, I, I obviously don't have any direct first-hand experience of what it was like and what people felt like they could sell in the 60s or the 50s. Um, but there certainly is or you know, an enormous spectrum of markets out there now. I mean, large and small. I mean, anybody writing short st stories isn't going to make money anyway. So finding a not particularly financial mar uh, market is, isn't that hard. And even the higher profile markets are probably more experimental than they were 20 years ago, I'm guessing. Though I have to be careful about that because, you know, immediately when I think about that, I, I always think back to how people who I know who, who, who follow the field very closely at the time talked about Sean McCarthy's period as editor at Asimov's and just how fundamentally critical it was. Mm. You know, uh, so I, I wonder if I would look back at that period 
you know, not long after the magazine started, if I'd find it to be more experimental than I expect. I, I have a feeling, and it's just a feeling, so it's not the most rational kind of thing, and I wouldn't put a great deal of weight on it, that Sean McCarthy's Asimov's was more experimental than either Gardner's or Sheila's. And I don't say that as a criticism, but just as, an, as a kind of observation. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd have to actually look into that, but it's a very interesting proposition. Mm. The other question, uh, which is related to that, is, is uh, whether Gordon's uh, version of fantasy and science fiction is more open to different kinds of fiction than, than, than Mills were, or that uh, Boucher and McComas might have been earlier. This is another point where I'd be really careful. My feeling is that Gordon is a fairly conservative FNSF editor. My feeling is that, unlike Ed Furman before him, unlike um, Boucher et al. in the earlier days of FNSF, the magazine feels more, you know, more conservative and more defined. Now, I think part of the reason for that is the market we live in. Uh, I think Gordon is very, very careful and precise about constructing what FNSF is. Uh, uh, about matching it to uh, the readership and audience that he has for it. And I think on one hand, that, that makes it actually, it's, it's a very good thing because it does give the magazine a really distinct profile. I mean, you know now as a reader, if you're familiar with the magazine at all, what it's going to be, be like. Uh, and there is, there is a certain experimental nature and taste to some of what he likes. Uh, I mean, Gordon has a fa actually has a fantastic track record as an editor. Uh, and did some f great work at uh, I think it was St. Martin's he was with, uh, yeah. and you know I think he was the he, in fact I know he was the commissioning editor on Jeff Ryman's Air for example. But um, that's come through a little bit to FNSF, but not you know particularly in the last few years. Um, you, you, you know, and you read a lot more FNSF than I do. I guess what I'm getting at is I'm not concerned about um, what I would call self-consciously experimental fiction. Yeah, uh, so much fiction which seems new and innovative, and uh, I would I would tend to put to it. Um, okay, let me see if I'm going to go out on this limb or not. <laughs> there are editors, there are editors, famously John W. Campbell Jr., but also Horace Gold, who know what they want in the magazine and they try to find fiction that fits what they want. There are editors, and I think that Boucher and McComas intended to do this, and I think that Gordon does this, and I think that Gardner did it, uh, who. Yeah know what they want in the magazine, but if they see something that they hadn't thought of, they can get very enthusiastic about it. My example yeah. with Gordon is Mary Rick, or Imrick, yeah. uh, that she was not writing anything that was identifiable, by, uh, identifiable as any tradition which FNSF or anybody else had, uh, had been writing on, and yet Gordon saw what she was doing and thought, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm now putting words into Gordon's mouth, but my, 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 in my imagination he was thinking, that's not what I was looking for, but now that I've seen it, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> well, I mean, that's not that uncommon. Um, I have to but say, like, you know, my own approach to, to a lot of this stuff is, you know, work out what you want, involve creative people, and then let you know trust them to do what they do, and they'll surprise right. you. Know, the good ones surprise you, and don't you know, they do better than you expected, um, by by giving you something that you didn't know you wanted yet. Well, when a writer comes out of nowhere, uh, an M. Rickard or a Kelly Link or, uh, or maybe even a Jeff Ford, uh, what, what they're writing does not look too much like anything you've seen before. 
as an editor, you have to be willing to take a chance and say, are my readers going to follow me on this? Yeah. Are they going to understand what's going on here? And those are the editors I respect. Yeah. Well, I, I think so. Well, thank you. No, but, but well, I, I will say this. I mean, one of the problems, and it's one of the great problems, I suspect, and I've never had the conversation. Actually, maybe I'll try to have it in Reno. I don't know. But uh, I suspect Stan Schmidt had, at Analog has a real challenge because he's got he's such a defined world to work within that uh-huh. he really has to he can't go too far out on, on a limb and just trust things. I mean, my own approach, and I would assume to some, yeah, to a lesser extent Gordon's, because I know that Gordon has a very clear idea of what, what he wants FNSF to be as well. My own approach is, for, for the projects I've done, I'm willing to trust my readers to follow my writers, basically. Um, I think there's a great obligation on, on Stan, for example, to really stick to the rough magazine template that he has. This is the kind of work we can publish and our readers want and that kind of thing. And I think that's very challenging and harder than we think. Well, I think when you have a readership that has a very set uh, set of expectations, which I, I suspect a lot of analog readers do, maybe not all of them, uh, that no, you're not going to see a Kelly Link story there. You're probably not going to see a Rachel Swirsky story there. Um, but, but those writers can develop uh, writers that have Distinctive approaches. I don't even want to say distinctive voice because when I when I mentioned Rachel Swirsky, who I think is one of the most exciting younger writers, mm. her stories don't look a lot like each other. Yes, uh, but there's something very distinctive about them. Kelly Link's stories really don't look a lot like each other. We can group them into zombie stories and. Well, yeah, yeah. But no, no, I agree. I mean, I, I will say it's interesting to note that Rachel Swirsky did, did uh, writers' workshops with Gordon. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's. I'm not sure she's actually ever been in FNSF, but I know that sort of had a good long try at it. So, yes. But I think there are writers, this leads us into another topic, which I was hoping we could talk about in a minute. There are yep. writers who don't necessarily come into the field um, accepting the, what I think of as the default positions of earlier science fiction writers or, 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 or the existing paradigms. Um, so that you begin to realize that maybe the, the, the what, what, as an editor, you have to think, what do the readers expect out of this field? What do the readers assume about the field? Here's what I mean by a default position. Um, it was pretty clear in the Campbell era, in the Golden Age era, and throughout much of the 50s that the default position of the future involved space exploration and involved mm. um, a continually growing economy, continually developing technology. Um, one of the things that almost never got addressed occasionally Heinlein would do it, but not very many other people, is who pays for this stuff and how does it get paid for? How does the economy of this work? Um, the default position is no longer that. The, the, the technological optimism of the 40s and 50s isn't part of the common body of knowledge that science fiction readers bring with them now. If anything, it's it's shifted from that to a, a more dystopian view. Well, I, well, okay. You need to... Okay, I think there are a couple of different things that happened at the, at the, around the same t- times, and yes, there are changing defaults. But the first changing default is the 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 gay science fiction gaze shifted, if you like. the The focus of a science fiction story up to a certain point was was mechanical. It was uh, technological. It was how you fix things with tools. Mm-hmm. In the early 1980s, it shifted to information and how you controlled and generated information. I think right? that's true. 
much as the way we looked to solve problems in the real world changed. You know, I mean, if you think about it with the evolution of the personal computer from the mid-80s on into from, from a esoteric you know, object that was rare and hard to find, something that was embedded into our day-to-day -day lives, you know, uh, science fiction has changed to reflect that. We're interested in communications technology. It's embedded in their stories now. Now, what does happen as well is in parallel to that, you have this shift from, well, partly there's, there's just the, the, the death of technological optimism, the belief that, that technology will solve our problems. I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's, a, a, I don't think it's the death of the fatal death. But I do think you know, that's no longer a default position. You're right. Uh, are we more dystopian? I think we're going through a very – well, the problem with saying this, I was going to say we're going through a uncertain time with lots of dark possibilities around as well as a lot of very exciting and optimistic ones. And to some degree that's going to color what kind of stories we tell. I'm a little bit reticent to, to go with the idea that that's had much chance to sort of grab hold. Um, I mean, I guess you've got sort of the whole rise of of global warming and how that discussion slash debate rolls into science fiction because it's all part of that idea of we have enormous problems and in 1955 we believe in fact if if you go back to the to the Skylarker space right in the Skylarker space they believed they could so technologically solve every problem that they could they came across and they pretty much did. Uh, and by 1953, when you got, when you got Double Star, we you know still very much a uh, practical man, and it was usually at that point a practical man um, mm. could use science and technology to solve problems, make the world better. Now, uh, fiction seems to sort of well, to some degree, cutting edge science fiction seems to break into mid to near future stuff that says. We can't cope. We just have to survive, you know. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily dystopian, uh, well, though it's dystopic, well, if you like. I think, I, I think dystopian is one of the ways it expresses itself. One of the things that fascinates me about uh, series novels, young adult novels like mm. the, the Hunger Games or Shipwreck, yep. uh, for that story, is that I think dystopia has become the default future for younger readers, for uh, for readers who don't feel... That they're part of the entitled generation, and and uh, the I had a conversation once with Octavia Butler about mm. her parable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was um, she had written uh, Parable of the Sword and Parable of the Talents, and had come under some criticism. Uh, she said, at least I don't know where it was from, but she said she heard uh, that she was talking about uh, uh, disenfranchised people. I mean, not only uh, blacks and women, but anybody disenfranchised by what became a fundamentalist right-wing government and parable of talents, um, that she was simply offering this kind of pseudo-religious hope that we can get off planet and somehow find our fate among the stars. And she pretty much convinced me that she believed that that was the only hope. She said, I, I can quote exactly what she said to me, she said, the only hope we have is to get out of here. Yeah. And that sounded phenomenally bleak. It, it is it is phenomenally bleak. I wonder if, if you'd had the same view on a better day. Um, and I, I can't say it's a, it's a view that I warm to, you know. Um, and and I, I don't know that I agree that the default reading for younger readers is uh, dystopian at all. Uh, I think there's one or two dystopians, you know, sort of series, and I think it's easy to look at The Hunger Games and its success and Paolo Labachagalupi's Shipbreaker and its success and extrapolate from that. But I think you have to be really cautious. 
because I think that most young adult fiction isn't dystopic at all. It's there, just as if you step outside of science fiction and fantasy and just look at young adult f- fiction generally, there are there's a lot of stuff where people are dealing with bad things as well as they're, they're, they're dealing with good things. But no, I'm not, I'm not convinced. And even then, with The Hunger Games, I'm beginning to think it's a different kind of book anyway. I mean, yes, it's dystopian, but it's a lab rat book, you know. Um, well, it, it, that's the other and even Shipbreaker has even Shipbreaker has a kind of uh, Huck Finn uh, ambience to it, where there there are spunky young, young kids who can survive in this world. Yeah, there but isn't a, they, can, they can fix this world though. Yeah, well, okay. Let let's allow that. I mean, Shipbreaker attempts to extrapolate from the world we're in. Um, my experience with Hunter Games is it doesn't. It's somebody who's playing an intellectual game, and they have to basically shut off connection to the contemporary world and extrapolate to a, frankly, completely unbelievable, unrealistic world, which they tell a very plausible story in. But it's, it's a closed-off sociology lab. It's not, you know, something that connects with the real world. It's not, in some ways, a truly... I mean, to me, a truly dystopian story extra, uh, extrapolates from today, gets to something terrible... And it's not fixable. That's dystopian, you know. Uh, a book like Hunger Games, which is, is very dystopian and feel, sure. Nonetheless, is completely disconnected from the real world. There, it, it, it's a video game. That book. Okay, uh, I, I'll accept that. I'll accept that partly as a compliment to the book as an adventure story because it's, it's, it's adventure terrific. Story. It's great. I love the book. But yeah, they, they, it works great as an adventure story. Uh, what I'm, but here, this brings me to another. Uh, what do you want to call it, a paradigm shift or, or mm-hmm. a shift in sure. yeah. um, Sometimes you see the word dystopian used to apply to these new books, uh, these young adult books. Sometimes you see post-apocalyptic. Um, my sense is that in the 50s, post, uh, 50s was a great time for post-apocalyptic literature because mm-hmm. everybody was expecting a nuclear war at any minute. Yeah. Yeah. And once nuclear war went away, then we had uh, global... Uh, epidemics. We had things like Stephen King's The Stand, for example. Sure. So, historically, the post-apocalyptic scenario was based after a single cataclysmic event, mm. a nuclear war, a, desi- a disease, a, a meteor strike, whatever it is. Now, post-apocalyptic is simply what happens after us. In other words, the, the current position seems to be that we're pretty much going to screw up the world on our own and we don't need a nuclear bomb or a disease or a meteor to, to do it for us. Uh, so in other words, the, the the notion that you can correct the future by doing something different today, I'm not sure that's there much anymore. I'm not sure that the correctability of the future or the fixability of the future is as much a dominant paradigm as it was in science fiction 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, even in a movie like uh, the first real I guess pop culture expression of a kind of classic mm-hmm. uh, science fictional dystopia was, would have been George Lucas's THX 1138. Mm-hmm. But even in a movie like that, there, the movie ends with the guy gets away, and there's some hint that you can go out on the surface of the world and you can recreate society in some way. Um, I'm not sure that that sensibility is there, at least to the degree that it was 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, that, that may be true. That may be true. I mean, certainly I think we're, I don't know, we're circling the whole thing in fiction. I mean, I look at, I look at The Wild Shore, you know, which is, mm. is, is a post-apocalyptic novel but doesn't feel dystopian um, to, to my recollection. I mean, Shipbreaker is far more dystopian. 
Shipship Breaker is a book that felt to me not optimistic about our future, truthfully. Um, or The Wind-Up Girl, frankly, to step away from YA again. So, I mean, yeah, I don't know. And, and I'm still... <laughs> yeah? Here's another paradigm shift. Here, yeah. Default relationship. Uh, for, I would say, a good 150 years, the default mad scientist in science fiction was Victor Frankenstein. Sure. Uh, Victor Frankenstein is somebody who, the, the classic line from 30s movies, <clears throat> investigating things man was not meant to know, building something, technology out of control. Um, there were the, the, the classic sociological texts uh, called The Children of Frankenstein. And now, uh, I'm just mentioning this because I've, I've noticed this in three novels I've read in the last few months. Now it seems to be Nikola Tesla. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between Nikola Tesla and Victor Frankenstein? Well, one, Tesla was real. Mm-hmm. Um, and he shows up in The Prestige. He shows mm-hmm. up in Scott yep. Westerfeld's third novel of Scott Westerfeld's um, uh, trilogy, Goliath. Uh, he shows up in uh, this, uh, oh, some other new novel he shows up in. <laughs> title. But, but what's the difference between Frankenstein and Tesla? Tesla was involved with essentially two dreams, information transfer and energy. He wanted to provide free energy to the world. Well, these are the two issues that we're concerned about today. Yeah. Uh, we're not concerned about building monsters. You know, we're not, I mean, building monsters may still show up a little bit in, uh, in pop culture versions of science fiction. In novels like uh, Robopocalypse, for example, or uh, or Michael Crichton novels, but science fiction itself seems to me to be more concerned with what will happen with with the misuse of information technology or the misuse of uh, of, of energy technology. Mm. That strikes me as being a, a, a major shift from the idea that we should stay away from uh, uh, from creating new things because they will go go wild and kill us uh, to we are in the process of creating systems that are going to go haywire and, and, and collapse on us. Where does something like the Dervish House sit with that? Hmm. Um, that's a very interesting question. Uh, where, do, where, do, where do all of all three of Ian McDonald's novels sit with that? I think in all three of them, information technology becomes crucial. Uh, becomes, it, it becomes embedded in the world completely, yeah. It's completely embedded in the world, and what goes wrong with the world? The one of the most, uh, to me, haunting images in the Dervish House is the notion that the, the Straits of Bosporus, the mud underneath it, has one civilization after another, which has died on these shores and is buried somewhere down in that mud. And you think that uh, one one of my questions, and when I began reading this novel, was why is he setting this in Turkey? And I thought. That's an absolutely perfect place to set it because that's where civilizations have collapsed <laughs> in the last five thousand years. I, I guess one thing I was thinking when you were talking about this is, I'm greatly attracted to science fiction novels that I don't know that they deal with broken worlds like the one arguably we we live in or or approaching, but feature them without ever becoming dystopian. I mean, uh, you've read Sterling's Islands in the Net, yeah. De- drowned future, all that kind of thing. It's almost post-apocalyptic, but not, um, but not dystopian. It, it it's that whole. It, it's a book where 
people living in the world is an you know is an optimistic enough thing to prevent it being dystopic, if you like, because we've not had to invent some abstract con- construction in the world like. Um, uh, you know, was was done in the Hunger Games, and we've not experienced some terrible, terribly extreme event like what happened in the mid nineteen forties with the Nazis, which were a very extreme and appalling thing. Right. Yeah. You know, if you extrapolate from, I mean, like if you look at today, I mean, we, we talk a lot about what um, what global warming actually will physically mean and all that kind of thing, but if you try and work that into stories. The solutions don't have to be, um, or, or the outcomes don't have to be appallingly dystopic. I mean, there's a great novella, or a terrific novella by uh, Paul McCauley in the in Asimov's this year called uh, The Choice, which is set in a, a drowned UK. You know, parts of it have been submerged because of rising waters, but life right. goes on. It's interactive. It's interacting. It's positive. It's all that kind of thing. It had it, it connects back directly to what's in my mind to a book like The Wild Shore. It connects to a book like Twenty Three Twelve. I mean, because yeah, this is another one of those things that science fiction does. And it's not a, a default thing, but you know, too often when science fiction goes into the mid to far future, it kind of has to disconnect and wipe the wipe the slate clean somehow so that they, you know we can do whatever we want with a story and it's always remarkably interesting to see a book that says i'm going to actually not do that and keep connected and allow for the world to progress and get to where we're going it seems I think, yeah i think you're right i think that's a middle ground um and i think with science fiction writers to be um to be fair to them have, have become more sophisticated in the last 50 years it doesn't have to be um, a survivalist kind of uh, cannibalistic. The one of the bleakest Cold War novels, one of the bleakest nuclear war novels, which is unfortunately almost forgotten now, was Wilson Tucker's *The Long Loud Silence*, mm-hmm. which is just terrifying in all sorts of ways, uh, and, and ends up with a scene of cannibalism, which was even excised from the first edition of the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the notion that it's it's either a choice between um, uh, a, a Campbellian kind of technological future, which may have problems, but they're all fixable by bright engineers, and a post-apocalyptic, post-nuclear disaster. Area. Now you're getting a, a group of writers who are thinking, well, somewhere in between there. I mean, um, Stephen Baxter's last several novels, that have, the ones that haven't taken place in uh, prehistoric times, mm. have just assumed that uh, they're just passing references to the Florida archipelago. Yeah. Uh, global warming will 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 we'll basically do a lot of damage to the Stan Robinson's um, uh, trilogy. Um, Science in the Capitol? The, the Capitol, exactly. And he pretty much you know, wiped out a chunk of California in that. It doesn't mean that that's the end of the world. It means that that's the kind of future we're going to have to cope with. But there's an implication that there are ways of coping with that. Yeah. Um, and to some extent, I think these writers want to have it both ways. They want to, on the one hand, and I think Stan particularly is one who really, well, Stan... Robinson and Paolo Bacigalupi believe that they they have messages they need to get out to their readers. Um, and they believe that very sincerely. So there are ways of probably um, avoiding some of these disasters. At the same time, there's a recognition that we probably won't avoid them. And, and then you bring in the scenario where somewhere between reducing ourselves to barbarism and technological utopia, we're going to cope. So I would say that... Um, if the Campbell model of science fiction is progress, the current model is coping. I think that's that? true. I think that's true. I, I, that, that feels true to me. 
Tell me, how important do you think um, spreading the message is to science fiction as a motivation? Well, my, my concern, and I've, I've, I've talked to Stan uh, Robinson and other writers about this, uh, the people, I mean, all, every science fiction writer would like to be read by non-science fiction readers. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't happen as much as we'd like to see it happen. Um, so that if you write an intelligent novel about, let's say, um, oh, let's say nanotechnology, mm-hmm. uh, and or you write something like, uh, uh, like well, Greg Bear's Blood Music is a classic example, mm-hmm. a story which came out before the term nanotechnology was even coined. Um, is that going to reach the kind of audience that Michael Crichton's, I think it's, I think the novel is called Prey, which was his nanotechnology. Yeah. Of course it's not, because audiences tend to go after, uh, you know, apocalyptic nightmares where we can essentially light torches and go after the scientists in the castle. Yeah. Um, so do people, I, I hate to say it, but do, do, do idealistic science fiction writers who want to change the world really change the world? My guess is that the vast majority of the readers are people who uh, feel validated, who already believe that. And I don't think that any science fiction writer... Other than one or two, which we could probably name, are going to change. I, no, I, I, I'll, not, I'll not even put that condition on it. I don't think any science fiction writers in the United States are going to change the attitudes of the Tea Party movement. No, but I mean, let, let, let's be clear. That's not the point that I'm asking. I'm looking at. I'm not looking at or asking about whether science fiction can change the, the world, right? What, even mm-hmm. though I know that I know people have felt that it could and. To, who saw that as an absolutely on, you know, critical thing. Yeah. It's how important is that urge in the storytelling? You know, how important is the urge in science fiction storytelling to fix the world with, with, with story? You know, like, I need to come out and tell you about global warming and just how terrible it is, says Paolo Bacigalupi. I need to yeah. come out and tell you about, you know, the various issues that Stan's addressed across his career. Um, how important is that urge to our field? Whatever, whatever the message may be, whatever else. I mean, this is about communicating in a fairly complex but entertaining manner, I guess. You know, but but bringing in this sort of urge to communicate, to deliver a message, to change people's way of thinking. Uh, and we have to be careful as well when we're glib. And, uh, I should let you answer the question, but we've got to be careful when we when we sort of say that we don't change the way people think because. We do. There are, or our writers do. There are examples of wh- where that happens and you know, how worldviews are changed. So, anyway, back to the original question. How, well, no, you, I think, I think yeah. you're right, and I think this is one of the reasons. Again, I had a conversation with Paolo uh, about mm-hmm. the shipwrecker when he was writing on it. It was very important to him, or at least he said at the time, to write uh, novels that would appeal to young adult readers because they were the only ones whose values were in the process of being formed. They, they, they were the only ones who would make a difference. Mm-hmm. And, he, and I think one of the reasons that some science fiction writers turn to young adult fiction is exactly that. Um, you, you, you actually might make a difference with some young yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, there's a sense, uh, there, there, there are a number of writers now, there's another project I'm involved in that I will be able to talk about in a couple of months, I hope, um, of science fiction writers wanting to write about achievable technological solutions for things, because um, if you're writing a, uh, that was, uh, yeah, there are motorcycles. I'm in Chicago, and occasionally guys on motorcycles decide to go down my street. Um, but the notion is, does science fiction, or can it, 
or has it ever really had any effect on uh, people devising technological or uh, or policy solutions to to real world problems? Yeah. Uh, we've all been told any number of times that. Uh, of the number of astronauts and scientists and NASA engineers who grew up reading science fiction. And I believe that to be true, um, even though I only know a couple of cases personally who, who felt that way. Um, but if you really write science fiction directed in, at, at, at an audience whose, whose, whose values you want, them, you want to share their values, you want to share your values with them, um, then I think, yeah, I think it can have an effect. I do believe there's a generation of people that grew up reading Heinlein juveniles um, who believed they could build a rocket and go to the moon. Yeah. And guess what? They built a rocket and went to the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of that's because Heinlein shows you step by step how this will happen. Uh, short, short of the engineering diagrams, he explains how it could happen. He thought it would be probably primary, uh, primarily uh, private enterprise that would do it, but that had to do with his, uh, his own views. Uh, is it possible to write that kind of science fiction now? I think there are a lot of writers who believe it might be. I, uh, I think it, there's evidence it is. I think, I hope it is. I hope l- l- let me give you an example. In the mid-1980s, a Canadian writer walked out of uh, Blade Runner so he wouldn't see too much, uh, mm-hmm. knocked out a novel on a typewriter, and created a vision of a, of a science fiction future that an entire industry works to this day to make real. Oh, to some extent, has made real. Yes, matter. yeah. I mean, the whole cyberspace thing, you know, that is, the, you know, the hope and frame, and then picked up by Neil Stevenson. I mean, I got an iPad in front of me, Gary. You read The Diamond Age. Don't tell me it's not the beginnings of a young lady's Victorian primer. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And to some degree, that's got to be partly where it comes from. You know, so... And an ancillary question to that is, is it possible at all anymore to write optimistic science fiction? Or is it even relevant to classify science fiction as optimistic or pessimistic anymore? I mean, would you describe The Diamond Age as an optimistic novel? I, I would have to reread it, but I would say, no, I don't think it's uh, relevant or important. I, I, but my, dear, my good friend Yetzi de Vries did an anthology a couple, uh, about two years ago, Shine, an anthology of optimistic science fiction. And despite his sterling efforts and some good stories, I don't think that the actual motivation for it came through in the final, in the final book. I don't think it succeeded on that part of things because I, I don't think it's the right breakdown. I, I think optimi- optimistic, optimism versus pessimism in science fiction is not an important discussion. I agree. I, you know, uh, I think uh, plausible solutions – Meaningful stories. Stories where, I mean, you can have bleak backgrounds where people triumph and it's not pessimistic, you know. Uh, and I think that's important. And that's what you see in a lot of these things. I mean, I think that it's a wonderful, well, I think it's an important thing that in a lot of contemporary science fiction, there are klaxon bells sounding about our world. But yeah. the fact that those klaxon bells can sound without, oh, God, without dystopia descending on us is an important thing. A critical thing, I think. And I think that's what most science fiction is doing. I mean, let me put it this way. If we live in a time when there is so much dystopian science fiction, how much genuinely dystopian science fiction is there? Well, this is one of the things that I, 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 I've been fascinated by in terms of academia, is that uh, 
what they uh, used to call utopian studies, well, they still call utopian studies. There's a society of utopian studies. There's, you probably are hearing somebody with a radio driving down the street now. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the notion of dystopian fiction or utopian fiction in terms of academic study separated itself from the science fiction study of science fiction a long time ago. They have separate conferences, they have separate journals, and so forth and so on. I see it coming back today, uh, coming back together, uh, but it's coming back together in a much more complicated way because I think you're right. I think science fiction has outgrown the dystopian, utopian uh, paradigm. That's another, mm. that's another default position. Uh, yeah. We know what We're no longer going, uh, and, and that, this, is, this is a shift that goes back to the 70s. I mean, one of the things that, um, one of my favorite one of my favorite Robert Silverberg stories is a story that makes up the first chapter of his novel The World Inside, which was published under the title of A Happy yep. Day in 381. And it's in some ways a brilliant story because on the surface it's narrated as a utopian story, how great it is to live in these giant arcologies. And the more you read, the more you read it as a dystopian story, what a nightmare this is, and this poor clueless narrator doesn't know how brainwashed he is by, the, by this world, and then you back off again and think, well, wait a minute, uh, this isn't really utopian or dystopian, it's simply a projection of what an arcology-like future would be, mm. uh, and it's very ambivalent in the way uh, you end up reading it. I think the way he, I think the way Bob intended that was to be a kind of nightmare dystopia with a very naive narrator, uh, but by today's standards, it's like, well, these people are surviving. Uh, and surviving becomes a lot more important than it used to be, I think. Uh, it's, it's no longer, it goes back to my point, it's no longer an assumption. Uh, when science fiction stories created dystopias or apocalyptic scenarios, uh, characteristically in the 50s at least, and up through most of the 60s, there was a sense that still some bright young person or some bright group of engineers or somebody could figure out some way out of this and they would create a colony. Yeah, yeah. Regenerate science and uh, and so forth and so on. You know what? Um, go ahead. I think we're getting our terminology wrong. Oh, really? Let's tell you why. I think, at least I, in this discussion that we're having, are t am too closely conflating dystopia with despair. Oh. Uh, I I maybe I mean uh, I think what we're when you look at things going, I mean, are we, you know, there's that thing about despairing, I mean, fiction of despair, despairing fiction, fiction where you look at the world and respond with despair, right? As opposed to what the de definition of a dystopia is, which is very, turns out, according to Wikipedia, is fairly well defined and very clear. And yeah. yes, indeed, The Hunger Games is dystopian, even though it's really a role playing game universe, but still. Um, but it's not despairing. And it's avoiding despair in fiction that's important. And I think that's partly what we're talking about. Or I may be completely wrong and be derailing this again. No, I, I think what you're doing is making a very important distinction between um, what fiction does and what ide ideology does. Mm. Ideology tends to fall into dystopian or utopian camps, I suppose. And it's a very artificial way of looking at the future. Uh, and when I, as I said earlier, I think science fiction has outgrown that uh, it's either that black or white distinction, it's either dystopia or utopia, there chances are that we'll just muddle along. Um, despair is what you get in the most extreme dystopian fiction, which is 
sometimes claimed by science fiction and sometimes not, mm. which is Orwell's image of when, when Winston Smith is told that the future is yeah. uh, a boot stamping on a human face forever. That's yeah. despair. That's, yes, it is. There, yeah, there's no way out of that. Uh, it's And it's despair, which is in, uh, apart from Orwell's relationship or non-relationship to science fiction, was very much in keeping with earlier Orwell novels like yeah. you know, Down and Out Paris and London. Yeah. Uh, so d despair is a is an attitude in fiction which is not necessarily connected to theme in fiction. And theme in fiction is what we're talking about when we talk sure. about dystopia. Sure. Dystopia. Yes, I think that's true. Speaking of dystopia and utopia, Gary, I've got a segue. Oh, good segue. Segue. I'm going to segue. Here's my segue, Gary. We're 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 not going to utopia, but we are going to Reno. I thought Reno was utopia. Nobody told me it wasn't. <laughs> well, it's not dystopian, and it's not despairing, unless you've got to sit on a plane for 24 hours. That might be despairing, but we're going mm. to Reno, and we're going to be recording podcasts there and stuff, which should be fun. I will we see you. We're going to have a barbecue. Yeah. This is one of the things that people who listen to us don't realize. You and I get to see each other maybe once a year. Maybe. I, I, we'll both be at Reno. I won't be in San Diego. We'll mm. see, but... Uh, but Reno should be uh, – uh, it should be a lot of fun if we can coordinate with the people we want to coordinate with. Absolutely. Uh, that, that's always the issue with these events. Well, it, it was, it's always the issue with Worldcons, and I don't want to seem to diss Worldcons because everybody should go to Reno, and certainly everybody should come to Worldcon in 2012 when it's here in my hometown of Chicago. <laughs> but by and large, what I find at, 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 at Worldcons is that there is a really good conference, a really good con, with all the people you want to see somewhere inside that massive space. Yes, yes, very the much. The problem is locating it. The problem is getting the people you... Uh, uh, the, I mean, world cons historically, and I don't know, I've not looked at the program enough for, for Reno to determine this, um, but you know, they've come more and more in American world cons, especially in the last few years, to focus on things like being a fan or media or gaming or whatever it is, all of which I think is fine. And I think those, those are perfectly fine cons to have. But the people who want to talk about books are now, I suspect, in the minority at most giant science fiction conventions. That, that may be so. I'm not going to mourn that very much, though, to be honest. No, I know. They're still there in very significant numbers. Uh, they are, and there there are places which are still focused, and, and I do think it's important, and I you know I don't think you'd disagree that we always embrace the broader spectrum of science fiction. So I mean, in that way, I'm not concerned about that. What I am glad about is that we're going to be there, and what I am happy about is that not only, in fact, hey, uh, I will see you in eight days. I think it is. That's true. We'll see each other in eight days. And something else we we noticed, we both noticed earlier tonight, is that uh, for people who are going to Worldcon or people who might want to just follow along with it, there are apps for both the iPhone and Android yep. devices. You can follow the program and look at the maps and all sorts of things. You have, actually, yes, I was playing around with, around with it. I downloaded it this morning, as, as did you. And what I notice is you can, you can do nifty things. I'm sitting here playing with my iPad. You can tell that it's a 20. And you can open up the program item, and if you're at the program item, there's a little Twitter icon, and it'll immediately paste in all the, uh, the hashtags and all that kind of stuff, and you can comment on the program item, item from your mobile device straight to Twitter, which is kind of fun. So you'll be, you, you may or may not, in fact, okay, let me put it this way. I'm going to say you may, but you won't. You won't hear from me Twittering from Reno because I will be too busy sitting in the bar talking to my friends, and I will take a camera along and not take any photos, just like I do every year, um, because I'll be too busy talking to my friends. 
Uh, and we'll go out and we'll have dinner with some wonderful people. It'll be awesome. If if the mail and pr- production is kind, I will be wearing a Cood Street podcast T-shirt, Gary, which should be fun. I've seen the designs for those. I cannot wait to see what it looks like. I hope, if, if they've come out well, they're going to be lots of fun, and we'll let everybody know about them. And we will be glad to sell them, I guess, to anybody who wants them. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, what we'll do is uh, we're going to have them on at least one, if not two, online sites, and we'll just point towards them, and people can order them as they choose, which should, mm-hmm. should keep our lives simple because, you know, to, to suggest that we're a cottage industry, Gary, would be not overstating the in fact in fact we would have to save up to get a cottage wouldn't we yeah it's, it's premature to say we're we're, 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 we're we're not quite ready to sell well are we ready to sell the i don't know coffee cups and thumb drives and... <laughs> i'm happy to make it possible for people to do that but i don't need to necessarily make money off it i'm happy to just have it all happen and we can yeah enjoy it and be able to go to conventions and i mean certainly by the time if everything goes to plan by the time we get to san diego uh this stuff should be freely available and by the time we move into unlike this year you are a major player at the next two major conventions in 2012 which is causing all kinds of scheduling problems for me thanks very much gary i think you really need to go to toronto in 2012 um plugging since i won't be able to go as i've said more than once on this podcast i won't be able to make San Diego World Fantasy, because of her granddaughter's bat mitzvah, which is very important. Uh, after Worldcon, I won't be anywhere until uh, the International Conference on the Fantastic, which will be a lot of fun, and I hope I can have t-shirts there. And then in World Fantasy 2012, um, Toastmaster. Yes. Well, see, here, here's the thing, because, you know, I've, I've got to decide. Do I come to Chicago, your hometown, and do Worldcon, or do I go to, to Toronto uh, your Toastmaster, uh, you know, and too busy to hang out with me, Gary, you watch, um, and enjoy that, because I can't, next year I don't think I can do both, I think I'm going to have to decide next year, so. Well, at, at, at your distance, it's difficult to choose both, uh, and my distance of literally one mile from, from Worldcon in 2012, I don't need to make that choice, um. <laughs> My, my, my solution is you should come to Chicago in August for Worldcon and stay through. <laughs> I don't know how that would go down with my day job, Gary, but. I, yeah, well, that's I, a problem to it. I, and, and also, and I say this affectionately and, and warmly and kindly, you know, Oscar Wilde, a man in many ways, certainly many ways wiser and certainly more articulate than I, said that house guests like fish go off on the third day. And I don't know if three months is really what you want. Well, it depends entirely on the house guest, doesn't it? <laughs> on that remarkably cheery note, Gary Wolf, I will see you in eight days. I, will I look see you forward in- to it enormously. And all of our listeners, look, you will hear th- this podcast will come to you about three or four days before Reno. And we will be up to our next in the experience by then. I'll be in transit and all of that. And hopefully we'll get some podcasting to you, you know, in time for our next due date. So. All right. I look forward to seeing you in about eight days. Okay. Take good care, my friend. You too. Bye.